With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Welcome to the World Shapers, conversations with authors about their latest books. I'm your host, Edward Willett, and this episode's guest, Danielle Sabuski, talking about her latest book, Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. Welcome to another episode of The World Shapers. This is episode 158. Uh, my name is Edward Willett. I'm your host, and this is the podcast where I talk to authors about their books. Uh, that is episode 158. For the first 157, everybody I've talked to has been a science fiction or fantasy writer, uh, but I'm actually planning to extend that to other genres. And in fact, today we'll be talking to a, uh, a medievalist uh, about uh, her book, Chivalry and Courtesy, but more about that in a minute. Uh, I am myself an author. I'm the author of more than 60 books of science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction for readers of all ages. My most recent uh, science fiction book is The Tangled Stars, which came out from Daw Books in New York uh, in the fall of 2022. I'm currently working on something else. I have some other things out there, so I hope there'll soon be a new novel I can announce. Uh, and I also have a reprint came out not that long ago, Soul Worm, my very first uh, novel uh, is out again now. And uh, that's through my own company, Shadowpaw Press. And I like to mention Shadowpaw Press because Shadowpaw Press is publishing a lot of books and many different genres. Although the first three of this year are all science fiction or fantasy, they are The Good Soldier by Nir Yaniv, which is a military science fiction satire. You can think of it as mesh in outer space. That's what Lavi Tidhar likes to call it. Uh, you can find it everywhere. Uh, the Headmasters by Mark Morton is a young adult science fiction dystopian novel set in Canada. And uh, that one is also out now. And you can also watch my interviews with both Nir Yaniv and Mark Morton right here on uh, this podcast if you go back a few episodes. And then the other book that came out was Shapers of Worlds Volume 4. This is a collection of science fiction and fantasy by authors who were guests on this podcast in its fourth year. Uh, that one is also out. It has people in it like Sherry Lynn Kenyon, Michael Brent Collings, David Boop, Jean-Louis Trudel. That's a long list of uh, wonderful authors and some really great stories. And it's also illustrated by Wendy Nordell, who's a Calgary artist and happens to be my niece. Uh, she did a brilliant job on that. And I will be launching a Kickstarter very soon for Shapers of Worlds Volume 5. Uh, and I will talk about that more once it goes live. Uh, in the meantime, I do want to mention that there is a current crowdfunder campaign little different crowdsourcing uh, site for Shadowpaw Press to help uh, with the publication of all of the novels I have planned for spring, summer 2024. Among those is the Downloaded by Robert J. Sawyer. That's my big lead title, I guess you could say. Uh, Rob has also been on the podcast twice now. Uh, and uh, that's uh, currently only out as an Audible original with an A-list cast that includes Brendan Fraser. So... Uh, It'll be out in print from Shadowpaw Press. That releases on May 7th, concurrent with The Trader's Son by the late, great Dave Duncan, a, 
a uh, major Canadian science fiction fantasy author, very prolific and, and uh, award winner and all that good stuff. And then going on through the rest of the summer, there is a poetry book, two poetry books actually, a literary novel and uh, new editions of uh, some middle grade science fiction horror novels, collectively called Canadian Chills by Governor General's award-winning author, Arthur Slade. And I'm already looking forward to my uh, my uh, fall list. So Shadowpaw Press continues to put out a lot of great books. And I hope you'll check it out at shadowpawpress.com and check out that crowdfunder. You can find a link to it from shadowpawpress.com. All right. So today's guest, today's guest is going to be Danielle Sibulski. Uh, and we'll be talking about her book, Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. So let me tell you about Danielle. Uh, as a writer, podcaster, TEDx, and professional speaker, Danielle has been making the Middle Ages fun, entertaining, and accessible for over a decade. A former college professor, she is the author of four books and hundreds of articles on medieval history. The creator and host of the Medieval Podcast and Extra Medieval, Danielle brings expertise and a sense of humor to the airwaves to dispel common myths about the medieval period and enrich our understanding about the people of the past. We'll talk about that quite a bit in this episode. Her writing, videos, and podcasts have been used as resources in elementary schools, secondary schools, colleges, and universities across North America. The Middle Ages and the Modern World, Facts and Fiction, a course she co-created, is currently offered at eight colleges across Ontario via Ontario Learn. In 2020, Danielle built the Medieval Masterclass for Creators, an online course designed to provide novelists, game developers, and other fiction creators. So there's kind of a tie-in here, see, to the science fiction fantasy things. If you're writing fantasy, you're going to want to listen to this and uh, get some of Danielle's books. With expert information in a visual format to help them bring their medieval worlds to life, she continues to offer her expertise to creators through one-on-one -on -one consulting. Called a tireless, champion, a tireless Champion, promoting medieval studies to both general and academic audiences, Danielle is the winner of the 2019 Lone Medievalist Prize for Scholarly Outreach for the Medieval Podcast and the 200-plus articles she has contributed to Medievalist.net. When she's not reading, writing, or recording, Danielle can be found drinking tea, doing creve maga, or sometimes building a backyard trebuchet. So let's talk to Danielle. <laughs> So, Danielle, welcome to the World Shapers. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I just realized I didn't ask you how to pronounce your name. I, it, Danielle, I presume. How do you pronounce yes. the last name? Sibolsky. Sibolsky. Okay. And I'm, I'm Willet. So, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice to as meet I was, you. Yeah, you too. As I was saying, uh, this is fun because uh, your episode... 158, and uh, oh, I'm going to take off my reading glasses so I, I look younger um, and possibly blinder. <laughs> uh, you're the first one who's not a science fiction or fantasy author because as I've moved into the video form of the podcast, I've decided to also expand uh, into other genres. Uh, so there you go. Uh, you're my first, so congratulations. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I, I know a little bit about the fantasy genre being a medievalist. <laughs> yeah, I figured that. Well, we'll definitely talk about that a bit. So we're going to be talking specifically about the new book, uh, Chivalry and Courtesy, uh, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. But before we get to the book, let's talk about you. Tell us about okay. yourself. How did you get into this whole <laughs> writing books about medieval manners gig anyway? <laughs> Well, I mean, I wish there was a sophisticated answer, but the real answer is Disney. 
I was really into <laughs> Sleeping Beauty when I was a kid. And that is based on 14th century art. So if you look at 14th、mm-hmm. century manuscripts, it looks a lot like Sleeping Beauty. And of course, I loved Robin Hood with the fox. That was just amazing. And everyone loves that fox, even medievalists. So that's what really got me into it. But I didn't realize I was going to become a medievalist until I got to university. And I took a course on medieval literature. And it had never occurred to me that that could be your entire job, like studying the Middle Ages. So from then, I was, then on, I was pretty hooked. And I went and got a master's degree in English literature. And I was focused on history. I spent all my time in cross listed courses with the Center for Medieval Studies in Toronto. So it's, a, it's technically an English degree, but You know, as much English as history. And then I stayed at home with my first baby, and I felt like I, I needed to do something for me to keep my mind busy. So I started writing for the internet.、Um, and then my little blog was called The Five Minute Medievalist, and it got picked up by a site called medievalist.net, which is a big site full of stuff for people who are interested in the Middle Ages. And from there, it kind of snowballed. So I collected a bunch of those articles. Into my first book, which I self published. And then from there, I've been writing books ever since and doing a podcast now as well. So, yeah, it was an unexpected career, but I'm enjoying it.、So、where, where are you from? Where were you born and grew up? And where are you now, for that matter? <laughs> I was born in the middle of Ontario. I grew up in northern Ontario, and now I'm living in southern Ontario near Toronto. Yeah. My,、uh, my daughter just graduated from the University of Toronto last year. So, and my wife's、nice. from Toronto. So, there's a connection <laughs> if you'd like. Yes. So,、um, I don't. I don't, I don't always feel like I know the South all that much. I still feel like I know the geography of Northern Ontario much better. But U of T is a great school. And has some cool buildings that look a little bit medieval. So, there you go.、Um, <laughs> yes. So, tell me about your writing process. This, this podcast used to focus entirely on the writing process. So, you, the,、mm-hmm. the newest book, Chivalry and Courtesy, where does, when, how do you decide what you're going to create a book from? You talked about the first one,、uh, but,、yeah. but as you go forward, it's, this is just me beating around the old hoary question where do you get your ideas? But that's, <laughs> that's what it boils <laughs> down to. <laughs> sure, no problem. So, the first one, Um, the Five Minute Medievalist, all of that writing was done based on things that I knew from talking to people that they were interested in about the Middle Ages and got wrong. So I was writing about myths. So the things like people thinking the earth was flat, that kind of stuff. That was the first article that I did that was, well, I think the first one I ever put online. And then after I put that book together of sort of a collection of essays about things people don't know, then the next one was a short, short book called. Uh, the Five Minute Medievalist Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse. And that was about <laughs> people thinking about The Walking Dead and、uh, what would happen in a post electric world. And it was really a vehicle for me to, to show people that the technology in the Middle Ages was actually very smart and people were not dumb back then. So then I, I did my first trade book, which is called Life in Medieval Europe. And that book was kind of the same as what I had been doing in that I structured it so that the, the table of contents is a series of questions. So you can read it front to back, or you can use it almost as a reference manual and go, if you're watching Game of Thrones or something, go to the table of contents and find your question like, do people date? What do they eat? That kind of stuff. And then I was approached by Abbeville Press, and that's who I did the last two books with. And so those last two books were kind of pitched to me in that. 
they had this idea about monks and what we could learn from monks. So that book became How to Live Like a Monk, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Life. And that was a really fun one to write because when I'm off the clock, when I'm not doing medieval stuff, I like to read about positive psychology. I like to read about what we can learn about human nature in science right now. So that book brought together history and science, psychology, that kind of stuff. So that was super fun. And we had so much fun doing that book that we looked at doing something else that was also fun. And that became chivalry and courtesy, because I think the first thing that you see and a lot of fantasy writers are probably going to be itchy when I when I say this. The first thing you see in media is people being like gross and like tossing chicken bones on the floor and just being disgusting. When you actually read books from that time. They're full of instructions on how to be well-mannered because humans have always wanted that, but somehow it doesn't translate into media when we, when we look at the Middle Ages because people want to imagine that we've evolved since then. And I mean, arguably we have not. So anyway, those books kind of came to me in different ways, but all of them at the heart of them is the idea of giving information to people in a way that is friendly, that's not intimidating. And that really gets at the fact that people are not too different from us today. So do you think that's the reason why people have that that vision of the of medieval times is just because we want to think we're better th than they were back then? Or where does that come from? Yeah. Why are there so many um, wrong impressions of medieval times? It's a good question. And I think there are two reasons. And one is that we always want to look better. We want to think of human progress as being a straight line, right? So we started out as cave people, and then we just got better from there and better and better. And if you look at human progress, obviously, it's not like that. There's always backsliding and shifting and changing. Um, I do think this is a great time to be alive. So this is not to denigrate us today. But I do think that we like to structure, we like to have a clean story. And then the other reason for that has a lot to do with the Protestant Reformation. So just after 1500, Martin Luther kicks off the Protestant Reformation. And this has a lot to do with, with being anti-Catholic. So everything has to do with being anti-Catholic. It's really a stripped down religion, no saints, no beauty, like just really, really strict. And so when you're trying to hype up your own religion or whatever you're trying to hype up, you have to make the other guy look bad, right? So from the time of around 1500, you have people already saying, that time was terrible. They were just superstitious and they were just wallowing in mud all the time. We are so much better. And this Protestantism is the result of that. We are leaving behind all of this terrible stuff and we are rediscovering Aristotle, which is like never lost in the first place. So this propaganda idea has been going on for at least 500 years. So mm. I can't blame Game of Thrones for that, <laughs> but it is it is all about making ourselves look better, whether we are 16th century Protestants or modern people. You're probably not the first person to try to correct some of these uh, things. I have a book no. somewhere. Can I even see it over here on this shelf to my left? Yeah, there it is. I'm going to reach for it because I can't. I'm disconnecting myself. So I, got this one, I got this one years ago trying to uh, life in a medieval castle. Yeah, yeah. I have a, Joseph and Francis Guise, right? Yeah, I haven't actually read it that I'm aware of, but I, I got it because I was, you know, fantasy writer and tried to research what things were like. Um, yeah. So you're, I'm sure there have been other people that have tried to 
correct some of the misapprehensions. Uh, how successful has it been? Do you think it's penetrating people's consciousness that perhaps the Middle Ages weren't also the dark and rude and dirty ages? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's getting there. And everybody goes straight to the geese. And I don't want to put them down. I just want to point out that they're writing in the 70s and 80s. And we have yeah, it's a very a old lot. book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have a lot more information now. So if you're looking for stuff, like... You can use that as a jumping off point, but really look at the scholars that are writing today in the public space. Um, and it's, it is making a big difference, I think. So I started writing for the internet in 2013. And like I said, I started off with like the idea of people not believing that the earth was flat. And as my career has gone on, so like over 10 years now, that is a, a myth that's starting to go by the wayside. People are starting to notice that. Not everybody, but a lot of people. And that is progress that, you know, it's taken well over 100 years before this even started to shift this idea. And I like I'm not taking credit for this myself. There's a huge team effort happening with medievalists in the classroom. And then there are a lot of us working in the public sphere. And so I really think that the stuff that's coming out from medievalists right now and the people what I mean by this is a lot of people who are writing in the university and teaching in the university are starting to do more forward-facing stuff. And that's really exciting for me, especially because when I started doing public-facing history in 2013, it was looked down upon by the academy. And so I was kind of a rebel. <laughs> I was outside of like the, the posh circles. But now so many people are, are doing public-facing history that I think that there is a shift. There's a lot of change so that if you are on what used to be Twitter someone might throw out a myth like this one, like the flat earth myth, and then you will have a million comments, people correcting or sending people to a better resource or things like that. And that's massive change. And I think that it's it's only moving forward. There are so many good writers that are getting, getting the, the word out about the Middle Ages. And I think it's about time, really. Is it penetrating uh, into things like Game of Thrones and, you know, mass media and in my own area, the fantasy writers, do you think you think it's penetrating? And I mean, to me, it seems like as a storyteller, it gives you a a better and more interesting setting than just the to the traditional thinking. Yeah, I think that it's different depending on where you're looking. So if you're looking at the literary sphere, I think that authors are getting so much more careful about these details and they're really researching the details when it comes to uh, the middle ages and uh, like it's the romance writers that are really kicking it off they're they're paying attention to these very fine details fantasy writers can you know expand and change things as much as they want but i do think that authors are being very very careful with this and tv and movies less so but i think this has to do more with scheduling right so when you have the juggernaut of a tv show a movie behind you you know, you're putting in enough research, but you're not putting in a huge amount of research. So when it comes to things like manners, like I'm thinking of a recent example being uh, it's Outlaw King, I think it is the one where Chris Pine is is playing Robert Bruce. And you have the, the prince of England and he's like eating an apple off a knife, which would never, ever happen. <laughs> but it looks great. You know, it looks good on camera. So I think that there is a, a big shift that's happening with authors because people in general, audiences in general, they want 
things that look real. They want more facts. They want the fiction that they're reading to be as close as possible with artistic license, but as close as possible to history. And I think that there's more flexibility in TV and movies for the reasons I'm saying, like budgetary reasons for for the most part, I would think. But if you look in the background of movies, like back in the 80s, for example, and now, the set designers, the costume designers, the prop designers are getting really good so that if you just watch these movies on mute and look at the background, look at the costumes, that's getting much, much better, more accurate, which is exciting to see. Let's talk about the new book, uh, Chivalry and Courtesy. Uh, first, I guess, uh, describe it. <laughs> okay, so this is a book that is, again, sort of a, a beginner's guide in that it's it's unintimidating. You can come into it and feel friendly and comfortable. So I've structured it to to talk about the manners and the type of societal expectations placed on people going from the bottom to the top. So I start with food because we all eat. And I think that when we think about manners, we think about food, we think about the table. So I start with food and then I go to things like how to woo, how to become a knight, so how to fight, how to rule a household, how to rule a kingdom. So it's layered up so that the king has to know how to run his household, how to be a knight, how to get a girl, and how to eat. So it's layered up like that. But it's, it is based around, and I've, I've deliberately made it based around a few sources so that you can really get to know them and see what people were writing at the time. I really like working with primary sources and those voices that are coming directly to us from the past. So yeah, it's about fine manners, as in, you know, don't put your elbows on the table, which is in medieval manners books. And then it, it has sort of a bigger view in that, what are the ethical um, the ethical considerations that a king needs to have, or what is it like to be a knight? Are you just always going out there with a sword swinging and not having any uh, any thoughts about the morality of it, or what it's like to actually hurt people? So all of these things are mixed up together in a way that is hopefully a friendly format with really beautiful pictures because Abbeville is an art press. And then there are these little faux woodcuts by an artist called Anna Lobanova, which are just unforgettable. Mm. They're beautiful. So where do you find your primary sources? And has that gotten easier now that so much is online? Yeah, it's much, much easier now. So I do get a lot of them online. And then I get a lot of them through friends. So I have my own podcast. And I'm now at episode 132, I think. So I'm talking to experts on the Middle Ages every week. So I'm reading their stuff. But the primary sources, you have to mine the secondary sources. You have to mine the historian's books and find out where they got that information. So I'm using footnotes and notes or, you know, links on an article or something to find the primary sources. And there are so many more than there were 10 years ago because stuff is being scanned. So you can look at an actual manuscript and you can see the paint flaking off. So that's amazing. But there are also scans of translations. People were doing a lot of translations in the, the 19th century. So you can get those. And those are really helpful because then you can read it in English. So my Latin is not amazing. So <laughs> I'm looking for primary sources in English. And yeah, the internet has made that so much better. It's kind of an aside, but have you been in the Rare Book Library at the University of Toronto in that beautiful, beautiful space? Yeah. 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 I don't know if you found any sources in there, but I walked in there. I was almost in tears. It was such a gorgeous space with all those books surrounding you and the kind of the cylinder and yeah. you know, this little bridge in the middle. It's 
It's very, very cool. It's beautiful. It's like somewhere between a cathedral and Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was kind of my reaction to it. Well, my reaction really was Bells from Beauty and the Beast when she That's goes it. into the library. <laughs> yes, I thought of that too when I went in there. Yes, the Fisher, the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library has medieval manuscripts and you can go and see them, but you have to ask nicely. But yeah, they have medieval manuscripts there and I've held them in my hands and crinkled the parchment. Yeah. But I'm usually reading digital. So Probably in, with white gloves on or, or some sort of gloves on before you handle them. <laughs> Actually, that that's an old idea. People don't use gloves anymore. Oh, they don't? No, because the, the parchment is happy to have finger oils on it. And people who use white gloves are not as careful because they can't feel as carefully. Mm, that's interesting. So yeah, you don't use white gloves anymore when you use them and when you See? look at a manuscript. See, another myth shattered. <laughs> <laughs> I know. There are lots of librarians pushing back hard on that one. So shout out to them. <laughs> That's something else you see in TV all the time, though, is when yeah. people are handling old manuscripts. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what are some of the things that you found in, in doing this book that, uh, you know, maybe surprised you or that you think would particularly surprise uh, modern readers? Well, there are some things that are a little bit funny. In that um, a source that I really kind of use a lot and work with a lot in the first chapter on on food and table manners is a source uh, that is called the Book of the Civilized Man. And it's written for children and it's meant to give them all of the table manners that they need so that they could grow up and be, you know, useful members of society and fit in anywhere. So that book had some things in it. I think it's that book that says, like, if you were invited to a feast, don't come into the hall on your horse. <laughs> so like that was like, oh, I wouldn't expect anyone would come on, come into the hall on their horse, but I guess not. But it was mostly very validating in that you have um, things like don't speak with your mouthful, don't ever double dip, don't put your elbows on the table, don't like cough in the direction of lords and ladies. I think one says don't blow your nose in the direction of lords and ladies. <laughs> but things things like that where it's like suppress those animal things like passing gas or whatever, like make sure that that is under control and really make the dining experience pleasant for the person that you're with, especially because in the Middle Ages, you're sharing a plate with one other person. That's just culturally what they are doing. So you're making the experience very pleasant for your dining companion, meaning like you wipe your mouth with a linen napkin before you take a sip from the shared cup because you don't want to leave an oil slick. Or you make sure that they get the best portions or you make sure that you're not putting your fingers in like the salt cellar things like that. And so if you were to say this to um, someone who is only watching medieval movies, it's going to be very surprising. But when I'm, sp when I'm spending time with people in the Middle Ages, I know that they are like us, that they don't want to feel gross and filthy and things like that. So it wasn't a surprise to me, but it was very charming and validating at the same time. So that is a really fun source to read. Were there any things that you discovered that you didn't know in writing this book that did, if not surprise you, at least say, oh, that's cool. Um, Aside from not riding your horse into the hall. <laughs> um, there are things like, uh, there is another source, if we're kind of sticking with feasting, for example, there's another source called The Good Man of Paris. And this is another really interesting one because it's a man who's middle-aged and he's having He's being married to his second wife, who's only about 15 years old, and he's expecting that eventually he's going to die. So he's writing this book to make her a good wife to him and to someone else. And in this book, he says, 
you know, when you have a feast, you have to go to the florist and you have to get great flowers and put them up. So like, this is one of the things that as soon as you hear it, you're like, well, that makes sense. But like, I had never thought of a medieval florist as being a job. So that that's another thing where it was kind of like, yeah, why didn't I think of that? Because of course you would have somebody who is in charge of garlands and things like that. But I hadn't thought about a florist. So there you go. <laughs> they have florists that are dressing feasts for the elite. You know, that would be an interesting character for a fantasy novel right there. Would be right? A medieval yeah. florist. Flower magic. I could see that. Maybe I'll write it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It would work. So um, what some of the matters that you're, you're, you're presenting, do you think there are things that medieval people considered good manners that perhaps we should bring back <laughs> that we've lost over the years that we would actually be be well off to to readopt well something that i have been thinking about lately is something that is very much a part of the middle ages and and culture really up until you know maybe 50 years ago is social hierarchy and i'm not saying that we should bring it back but there's it's it's interesting when you look at culture today when we have we have taken back all of that hierarchy to the point at which we have children that call adults by their first names, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so it's interesting to see how that's playing out. Um, is it making society better or worse to have less social hierarchy? I don't know, but it is an interesting thing when you have it so clearly structured in the middle ages, like here's how you talk to that person who is above you. Here's how you dress to show what your status is. And because that's really been flattened, right now it'll be interesting you know in 50 years or more 500 years to see what that's done to our society is it is it good is it evolution i don't know but it's it's interesting to see these things playing off each other in the modern world now of course when we're talking about medieval times are you focused strictly on europe because of course there were cultures all around the world at the same time <laughs> yes and that's a huge and important point so i study so the middle ages we're talking about 500 to 1500 and that's the european middle ages so you have wiggle room all over the place and of course there's a global culture and it's important to remember that europe is not isolated and it's not necessarily the forerunner of culture or technology or anything so there is a whole wide world out there yeah, china would like to have a word <laughs> about that absolutely at the time. <laughs> absolutely and there's i mean there's trade with uh indonesia and you know there's there are people going across to north america you know on the qt getting wood for their greenland occupation and stuff but so it's a global society, but in that thousand years, you you have to specialize in something or you're going to go crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> I do specialize in Europe. My specialty is England and France. And uh, so I look at those sources specifically. And my favorite century is the 14th century. So a lot of that stuff you see in my work is kind of hovering around the 14th century. I don't spend a lot of time with Vikings, but I mean... You have to pick something or you're going to go nuts. So, yeah, my specialty is Europe in the 14th century. I think the reason I thought of that was because with the idea of the the hierarchy, that still exists certainly more in some cultures than it does in in West. I think of, uh, you know, Japan, for example, still has that. Mm -hmm. Even the way that you refer to people has something to do with their age and where you are in relationship to them. So, yeah. Uh, so it, I guess one of the interesting things about history in general is that we're all human beings and yet there are so many different ways that we have approached the living and living 
uh, with each other. And uh, your book obviously is focusing on the way that it was done at one, one particular time, out of which much of what we still do seems to have come. And you look at those table manners, like don't put your why don't you put your elbows on the table? Why is that rude? <laughs> and why was it rude then? We still consider it rude, but why is that? It's not explained, but I think it has to do with you're going to knock stuff off the table. <laughs> you're going to knock a wine glass. And in the Middle Ages, you have a linen tablecloth, and we still have linen tablecloths today, but they're often treated. But you have a linen tablecloth. It's hard to get the wine stains out of that. So like, <laughs> don't knock the wine over. I do think that has much to do with it. And also it's very, it's very rude. If you are putting your elbows on the table, you're blocking off the person who's next to you from being able to talk with you. So it's, I think it's rude in two directions, but they don't actually explain why it's rude in the source material. One of our uh, ways that we tend to think of the middle ages is that you were always like a hair's breadth away from being, you know, run down by a knight or <laughs> decapitated yeah. by some guy swinging a sword or whatever. Yeah. Uh, how much of that is reality? Was it a more violent time? And how much of manners had to do with the fact that everybody, a lot of at least a certain class, were armed <laughs> all yeah. the time? Uh, yeah. How does that all tie in? It is a more violent time overall, but it is not a time where you can just hurt people and get away with it. So like there are these two things that are that are pulling against each other. So it's not a paradise of a time. And what I mean by that is that there are not the same, like there isn't a police force, right? So you do have some law enforcement, but there isn't a police force, right? So a lot of people will get away with crimes because they could just leave town and they can't be found and no one can check out their fingerprints or anything like that. There are forensic investigations when people get killed, but you know, it is a more violent time in that you have more domestic violence um, and you have more casual violence, like, you know, people might what people are are uh, punishing their children through corporal punishment so like it is a more violent time overall but when it comes to things like executions people are not super into it they don't like to attend them um they sometimes do but usually they don't executions i've had a few episodes of my podcast about this people want more in-depth information but they happen outside the city and people complain if they have to see them like they don't want to. Or if you like sometimes a hangman will um, will put someone up on the gallows and then leave and because he doesn't want to watch this strangulation. It's not there is no trap door. So it's a strangulation and people will cut them down because they don't like death. They don't want to see it. So um, that is a myth that people are just like swinging swords around and hurting people all the time. When you're talking about that, it's usually warfare. And that's not all the time and it's not everywhere. And it's funny because when I tell people this, and it's based on like a huge amount of research, <laughs> like it's not just, it's not just me saying like, oh no, it's a brilliant paradise of a time. But like the stuff about hangman, like this is Kenneth Duggan's work. Like when people see this, they're almost disappointed. They want it to be a more violent time. They want it to be a time with lots of bloodshed uh, and violence. And it's, not really. And I think that tells you a lot about human nature. So I'll give you one more example. And that is on the law books. And this is one of the things people will look at and say it's a more violent time. On the law books, there are a lot of felonies that for which the punishment is death. But if you have, if you actually look at the records that say what happened to these criminals, it's almost always a fine 
or exile. And there's a reason for this. One is that the the people who are making these judgments are part of a small community and they know that person. And it's very hard to cast a capital judgment on someone that you know. And then the other reason is like it's on their immortal souls if they mess this up. They will go to hell if they have, you know, sent someone to death that they shouldn't have. And so it's much easier to say, like, pay us a fine or get out of town. The problem is solved. So when you look at that, yeah, people get disappointed because they're like, what? <laughs> Where are all the hangings? <laughs> Where are all the beheadings? There's actually a lot fewer than you might imagine. That's the French Revolution is when you really want to get into the, the you mass know, executions. I didn't want to, like, denigrate other time periods, but things like witch trials, they're happening in the early modern period. Or things like the French Revolution with all the guillotining. That's not the Middle Ages. So, like, Middle Ages is actually a pretty decent time in the course of history. You know? and, the, and the other part of that question was, were there manners for the armed class, if you'd like, that, was, yeah. that were designed to keep from giving offense so that everybody is very, very polite? Because at that level, you could be causing incidents that could lead to conflict. Yeah, yeah. So people always talk about the quote unquote code of chivalry and there isn't one. So if you look at the book, I mentioned this, there are several uh, books just within mine that say like in Italy, they're thinking this thing. In Spain, they're thinking this thing. In France, they're thinking this thing. And it depends on where you are, when it is. So there isn't one universal code of chivalry. But if you could distill it down, it would be based on Christian values. And one of the things I think surprises people is a major part of this is mercy. And this, I think, has to do with not only that Christian value of giving people a second chance, which was very important to people at the time, but also not causing an incident. Like you're saying, if you are so proud that you're fighting everybody, like no one's going to want to be your friend. No one's going to want to help you. And it's very dangerous to to have a one-on-one -on -one combat with someone so a lot of scholars have theorized that chivalry was meant to temper knights who are trained to be killing machines to be sent out to fight on command so like in war and chivalry is a way of tempering their behavior not only giving it a bit of a sheen of respectability but also making sure that they're not indiscriminately cutting off heads everywhere and mercy is a really really important part that i don't think people associate with knights necessarily but they would much rather rather ransom someone at least of their own class than kill them right on the battlefield so that might be something that surprises people so uh, the book is out now yes uh and uh, tell me about the publisher it's they focus on they're an art publisher, you said, so you have these beautiful illustrations. Yeah, so it's through Abbeville Press, and it's distributed through to bigger companies. So Abbeville is small, but it's a, it's a really cool New York publisher. And you'll look at their other books and see that it's all about photography and images and things like that. So I was very lucky to be part of this because it allowed me to really look at these images and show them to people. And there's a lot of pictures in the book that come from the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Museum, especially the cloisters, that show you what everyday objects look like. So yeah, both How to Live Like a Monk and Chivalry and Courtesy each have over 80 illustrations, which is unusual for a history book. Usually you have a plate section. And so you have an image on almost every page. Mm -hmm. And then you have these beautiful woodcut 
woodcuts by Anna Lobanova that are just gorgeous and super fun. They are like pseudo medieval and pseudo modern. There's one of my favorites is a knight on a motorcycle. <laughs> so it's a it's a fun book. It's a beautiful book. I'm very grateful to have worked with Abbeville. And what are you working on now? Um, I am working on something that I can't talk about. So I'm I'm working on um a proposal for a new book, which I'm keeping under wraps. But then I have a few projects that I will be talking about in a few weeks. Can't talk about them yet. So if people want to know more about what I'm up to, they can follow me on social media or listen to my podcast, which is just The Medieval Podcast. That was actually my next question. Where can people find out what you're up to? So you just answered it. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for being on, Danielle. I, I really enjoyed the uh, talk. And uh, Best of luck with the book and with the mysterious project that you are currently working on but can't tell anybody about. <laughs> yes, not yet, but soon. <laughs> so thanks so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So thanks again to Danielle for that great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too, and that you will look for her new book, Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. That's it for this episode of The World Shapers. Uh, I will just give you a few final reminders that you can find The World Shapers online at theworldshapers.com. And all of the past episodes are available there with links uh, to the audio versions uh, up until episode 149. They were all audio only. The audio version continues. You can access it uh, there or anywhere that you like to listen to podcasts. You'll find it everywhere. Uh, you can also find The World Shapers on X at The World Shapers and on uh, Facebook at The World Shapers. You can find me at edwardwillett.com. That's uh, two T's on Willett, edwardwillett.com. You can find me on X at eWillett. You can find me on uh, Facebook at edward.willett. You can find me on Instagram at edwardwillettauthor. And you can find me on YouTube, as you may very well have done if you're watching this, uh, at youtube.com slash edwardwillett. That works. Among other things, on my pod, on my uh, YouTube channel, you will be able to walk around Regina with me. I do that several times a week, live stream my walks. So if you're if you'd like to take a walk with me, where I blab on and on about whatever I'm doing publishing wise as well, usually, and talk about my my city of Regina here, you are welcome to uh, to join me there. You can find my publishing company, Shadowpaw Press, at shadowpawpress.com. It is on Twitter. Sorry, X at Shadowpaw Press. It is on Instagram at Shadowpaw Press and it's on Facebook at Shadowpaw Press because, unlike myself, I got all the handles the same for it. Uh, and again, uh, Shadowpaw Press uh, has just published three uh, new books that you might want to check out The Good Soldier by Nir Niv, military science fiction satire, The Headmasters by Mark Morton, which is young adult science fiction dystopia, and uh, Shapers of Worlds Volume 4, which is a collection of science fiction and fantasy stories by authors who were guests on this podcast during its fourth year, and it's illustrated by Wendy Nordell. That's it for this episode of The World Shapers. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope that you will continue to come back as I talk to other authors about their latest books. That's it for this time. Bye for now.
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.